Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading nuclear deterrence experts for a lively discussion on current topics. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Deterrence Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the host and the guests are their own. and welcome back to the latest edition of NucleCast. I, of course, am your host, Adam Lowther. Uh, so welcome back to another episode. Now, NucleCast is brought to you by the ANWA Deterrence Center. Now, you can help us to educate key stakeholders about nuclear modernization and the key strategic issues that uh, the nation faces by liking us or following us on your favorite podcast platform. So please do that. I want to introduce my guest to you today, who is David Trachtenberg, whom I would consider a friend and somebody whom I seek advice from from time to time. Now, if you don't know David Trachtenberg, I would encourage you to climb out from under that rock you've been living under because he's one of the most important people in our community. He, of course, is the vice president of the National Institute for Public Policy. Uh, a few years ago, he was the deputy undersecretary of defense for policy. And in his previous jobs before that, he's worked in industry. He's, he's, a, you know, he's a professor now. He, he's done so many things over the course of his career that, uh, you know, he knows quite a bit about the nuclear enterprise. So with that, I want to welcome in Dave Trachtenberg. Well, thank you, Adam. I really appreciate that uh, very gracious uh, introduction. Uh, I, I'm really glad to be here with you today. Looking forward to the discussion. Now, I wanted to also thank Vladimir Putin for uh, giving us lots to talk about. He's been doing quite a bit of that lately. Uh, so, you know, we were planning on talking about China and Chinese modernization, Chinese strategy. But before we turn to that, I wanted to, to just talk about Vladimir Putin's most recent threats and get your, your take on, you know, uh, his threats, because he's made so many lately. And so as, as, you, as you think about them and as you try to process what you think he actually might do, what you think he actually means, how do you read Vladimir Putin's threats? Well, you know, uh, that's really the $64,000 question here is, is, is what is Vladimir Putin thinking and what is he going to do? Uh, and, and unfortunately, no one other than Vladimir Putin really knows the answer to that question. The, the challenge with respect to deterrence and trying to figure out what's necessary to uh, to defend against uh, aggressors is it's really not possible for anyone to get into the mind of an opponent. Uh, and deterrence is really based on what the other side thinks, not not what we think they should think or what we think should deter them, but what, what they think. 
And you're absolutely right. Some of the statements uh, that uh, have come out of Vladimir Putin and other uh, Russian officials and Russian commentators of late uh, have been absolutely remarkable uh, in, in that I, I would say unprecedented. I don't, I don't recall any uh, threats uh, to use nuclear weapons or any threats against the United States and NATO of the kind that have emanated from Russian leaders today. I don't recall any of that, even during the height of the Cold War. Uh, this is really this is really new territory. I think we are in. Um, with respect to the nuclear question, which nowadays seems to be on everyone's mind, will he or won't he actually use nuclear weapons? And if so, how might he do that? Uh, again, I don't think anyone really knows for sure, but I will tell you what worries me uh, is that Putin has seem, seems to have laid the predicate for actual nuclear use should he decide to go down that path. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is the Russian Federation uh, has publicly outlined and expressed the the conditions under which their use of nuclear weapons would be justified in their view. And, and they've laid that all out publicly. One of those conditions uh, is when the Russian Federation uh, is, say, under attack by conventional weapons, conventional forces, when the very existence of the state is threatened or in jeopardy, the very existence of the Russian Federation. Now, if you look at some of the statements from Vladimir Putin, he has used those exact words in connection with the situation in Ukraine. Ukraine, in essence, according to Putin uh, and others, poses an existential threat to the, to the existence of the Russian Federation. And so I think what he, what he has done and what other Russian leaders have done is essentially laid the predicate for nuclear use should they go down that path. I think that's extremely worrisome. Yeah, it is. And, and that's one of the sort of, if you follow, you know, the common, the commentary at, uh, you have folks that are, you know, pontificating on whether will he or won't he, and what are the probabilities he will, and what are the probabilities he won't. But one of the things I, I sort of think most about is what is our, our, the United States, and of course, NATO, more broadly speaking, our ability to effectively deter uh, Vladimir Putin in our capabilities, our posture, our policy. As you look at not only what Vladimir Putin says, but, you know, I see the world in terms of, you know, uh, prospect theory. I, I, you know, believe that people think in terms they overvalue losses and they undervalue gains. So they means they, they tend to be risk averse. And I think nuclear weapons are, you know, designed for that type of a mindset. But I wondered, are we postured such that we create that sense of potential loss for Vladimir Putin? Or are we postured both with our capabilities and policy such that we minimize that loss that would effectively deter him? Mm -hmm. It's a great question. 
The problem is I don't think Putin or the Russian leadership generally believe that the U.S. deterrent, and in particular our nuclear deterrent, is that credible against a Russian invasion of Ukraine or Russian action against Ukraine, which, of course, is not, not, a, NATO, not a NATO member. However, uh, if, it, again, if, if you look at what the Russians have been doing, I think the Russian objective is, is not just to break up Ukraine or, or take some pieces of Ukraine. I think the overall Russian objective is, is to basically refashion the entire world order, which they believe has been unfairly dominated by the United States and the West. It's a much broader strategic objective. Uh, and in terms of deterrence and our ability to deter Russia, uh, I think uh, obviously, despite some of the some of the statements that the current Biden administration made prior to the Russian invasion, some of the threats of sanctions mm -hmm. and things like that, that was insuff insufficient to deter Putin from actually going back into Ukraine. Remember, he took uh, seized Crimea in 2014, uh, and now again, uh, what's uh, uh, the uh, more uh, massive invasion right. uh, of Ukraine. Uh, so in, in that respect, I, I think Putin saw weakness in U.S. policy. Uh, I think the fact that uh, the President of the United States has essentially established what I would call, what I would consider red lines. Uh, but the red lines are more applicable to us than to Russia. And what I mean by that is President Biden has said, we will not deploy American forces to Ukraine. Right. We will not take certain actions because they could be perceived as escalatory or provocative. In fact, the United States postponed two ICBM, routine ICBM tests, uh, long planned, uh, in, in an effort to try to avoid anything that could be perceived as escalatory. How did the Russians respond? Well, like they, uh, uh, they basically have their new Sarmat uh, ICBM uh, and have heralded that you know, as, as sort of their, uh, one of their new systems, their answer uh, to, to us. Uh, there, there's been absolutely no reciprocity in terms of restraint. The restraint we've, we have exercised in our strategic forces and policy has, has not been matched by similar restraint. And in fact, I, I tend to believe that it has served as an inducement or an encouragement to the Russians to do more. The other thing I would note is, is that the former Russian president, Dmitry Nedelev, uh, just several days ago, made, made a, 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 a very belligerent statement uh, in which he said, and I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but I think I have the statement almost uh, pretty accurate, uh, essentially that NATO cares more about Washington, London, and Brussels than it does about Ukraine. Uh, in other words, almost an, an implicit threat there to the United States and to NATO saying, don't get directly involved in this conflict because we have the ability to reach out and touch your capitals. Uh, and as Putin said, this is not a bluff. I'm not bluffing. Uh, and so the threats have been coming from the Russian side, sort of fast and furious, 
And I, you know, I think I, I think unfortunately, the United States uh, has a, a bit of a credibility problem uh, in trying to convince Russia that, you know, what what they did that they should not have done what they did in Ukraine. Well, it's interesting because if you know if you were, saw it over the weekend, I think it was um, General Petraeus was on Meet the Press or one of the Sunday shoes, I think it was. And he said that one of the things that he thinks the U.S. might do in the event of a a use of a nuclear weapon or small number would be to sink the Russian fleet. Um, now that to me, does that seem sort of a, an appropriate response? Or as I sort of think about it, I wonder is that, even though it's a conventional response, is it a much more escalatory response than than a potential low or ultra-low yield use of a nuclear weapon against a very specific military target, which as we sort of pontificate about what the Russians actually might do, there's no real thought that they're going to put, you know, a 200 kiloton, you know, ballistic missile in downtown Kiev, but there's more likely going to be a low or ultra low yield uh, weapon on some military target, which, you know, if, if you're familiar with nuclear weapons effects, that's a, that's a pretty limited strike. So how would, would a U.S. strike like destroying, a, you know, a Russian army or destroying, you know, um, the Black Sea or Baltic fleets? Would that be escalatory, even if it's a conventional response? I think, if, number one, it depends on what the Russians actually do. And if they, if they, uh, if they use nuclear weapons... What does that look like? How is that done? How many are used? What are the circumstances, etc.? But, but number two, and perhaps more to your point, uh, is that uh, I think uh, I think the Biden administration may view such a response, in fact, as escalatory. Uh, and you know, anything that involves a direct confrontation with with the Russian Federation. Uh, I think is likely to be seen as escalatory or too escalatory a step to take. Uh, and, you know, it seems as though the administration has been, has been frantically searching to try to find some off-ramp for mm -hmm. Putin uh, to de-escalate the crisis, while Putin is threatening to escalate the, the, the crisis. Obviously, Putin doesn't want to lose. There's a reason he attacked Ukraine. Uh, there's a goal and objective he has in mind. He does not want to lose. And so you know, the question is, will he accept defeat or is he willing to escalate? He says he's willing to escalate. Is the United States willing to escalate in response? I think that's the question. And as of, as of yet, uh, I've not seen the administration, the U.S. administration, uh, express any kind of willingness to escalate to the level of direct U.S.-Russian confrontation. President Biden has said, we don't want World War III. Well, you know, there's, there's no automatic escalation to World War III. There are all kinds of things that can be done. General Petraeus has suggested, some others have suggested uh, 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 other things. But my sense is that 
the prior reluctance of this administration to be more to more aggressively challenge Russia has perhaps created an opening for Russia to take the actions it has taken and to actually threaten to do more. That that is the discrepancy I think that exists uh, in uh, in our deterrent posture vis-a-vis Russian actions, and that I think is 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 where the danger is. Uh, you know, it may be too late to deter Russia from taking escalatory action if they believe that they can get away with it, because NATO would never launch an attack against Russia because of the vulnerability of NATO capitals and NATO populations to to a Russian response. Uh, that's a very dangerous position, I think, for the United States and for NATO to be in. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the ANWA Deterrent Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. Now, one of the things about, uh, so I'm going to put this in a deterrent, in a uh, prospect theory context. And so, you know, and I think about that this helps explain like Saddam Hussein's actions, for example. So according to prospect theory, we, because we overvalue potential losses, we are therefore risk averse when we should take a risk because of a high probability of, of getting a gain. Instead, we say, nope, I'm not going to take that high probability risk because I fear the, the small potential loss more. So that's what it says. But then it also says that once um, someone is guaranteed a loss, so they know they're going to take a loss, they double down and become highly risk accepted. And so if you take that and apply that to you know, ad, inferior adversaries of the United States, whether it's Slobodan Milosevic or Saddam Hussein, when when the United States essentially says, "Hey, we're you know we're going to remove you from power," you know, you know we're going to destroy your regime, we're going to do all these terrible things, then you you essentially leave that authoritarian no other option but to fight the United States. And so I wonder, are we in a position? with Vladimir Putin now, where we have essentially created a situation where we're guaranteeing Vladimir Putin a loss, and therefore he's going to, as prospect theory would predict, he's going to double down, you know, like a gambler does when they start losing. You know, they say, oh, man, I've lost a bunch of money. I I better double my bets and win it back. So is he sort of following this model and and if if it's true, 
is there a way that we can sort of remove the guaranteed loss and create, you know, because it's all perceptual, it's all psychological. Is there a way to create a situation in which Vladimir Putin doesn't think he's guaranteed a loss and therefore he becomes, he sort of reverts back to that risk, you know, risk averse model? Uh, I mean, is that even possible? Yeah, that's, that's a really great question. And it's a great analogy that you raised in terms of the gambling analogy. There have been studies that have been done that, that, that actually back that up, you know, you know that say, you know, a, you know, a gambler who, who's losing money feels that he needs to double down to try to reclaim what, what he believes he's owed. It is his money. Uh, and to try to win that back, he wants to try to, you know, yeah, he'll, he'll bet more. Uh, Russia believes and Putin believes Ukraine is part of Russia uh, and should be part of Russia. So he sees an independent Ukraine as, as from his perspective, anti-historical. Okay, so the loss, the loss of Ukraine as part of the Russian empire, so to, so to speak, uh, makes him want to double down to reclaim what he believes is rightfully his or rightfully Russia's. That, that is the problem. He's willing to take risks that the United States is not, at least to this point, has not been willing to take. The United States is basically sort of a, a, a risk averse, a status quo power. Putin and Russia are seeking to upend the status quo. They're seeking to replace the world order again, that they believe has dominated, been dominated by the United States, you know, with one more to their liking. They're willing to take greater risks in order to do that. Is there a way that, that we can prevent Putin with some kind of a solution where he doesn't feel that he has lost? Uh, I don't know what the answer to that question really is. I'll be honest with you. I don't know if there is uh, a, a way to convince Putin that you know, he should cease and desist uh, in in what he is doing and attempting to do. Uh, you know, but uh, I, I will tell you, I also don't believe that it, that the challenge falls to us to try to give him some kind of an out. He has created the circumstances that he is now dealing with. Uh, I think we have done a good job in in arming the Ukrainians and in and in getting the kinds of weapon systems they need to score some victories on the battlefield against Russia. I've seen the reports about, about some of the some of the uh, low morale uh, of the Russian troops. Uh, we've all seen, I think, some of the videos of the protests going on in Russia uh, based on the uh, call-up of additional military personnel uh, and things like that. But Putin has put himself in this situation. Uh, and you know, again, not not being able to read the mind of others, it's awfully hard to know what he might consider acceptable or unacceptable. Um, and, and really, all we have to go on are, are his statements and his actions. And both his statements and his actions appear to be much more risk tolerant uh, and much more aggressive in nature. So. I don't know that there's anything that we can do right now, other than to make sure, uh, other than to make sure 
Ukraine emerges from this victorious, uh, and uh, the the Russian goal or objective, or essentially reclaiming Ukraine, is defeated. Now you wrote, I think you and Keith Payne collaborated on a recent monograph that addresses what you know Admiral Richard, the current Stratcom commander. I said is one of his biggest priorities, and this is the challenge of what some are now calling tripolarity, or the fact that we live in a, a world in which it's not just the United States and the Soviet Union, it's the United States, the Soviet Union, and a rapidly uh, increasing, you know, a China with a rapidly increasing nuclear arsenal. And so as you and Keith tried to get at this challenge, what was your sort of take on tripolarity and the solution to the problem? Yeah, uh, the, uh, the, the issue is much more complex and complicated now than it ever was during the Cold War. During the Cold War, as you know, our primary focus was on the Soviet Union uh, and, and then later uh, on, on Russia. The emergence of China as a sort of a peer nuclear competitor uh, with what uh, Admiral Richard, the head of Stratcom, has called China's breathtaking uh, buildup uh, in its in its nuclear potential uh, and its and its forces creates different conditions for deterrence to function. Uh, what what we have argued in in our monograph in our uh, occasional paper uh, is, is that. The situation today is now much different. We have the United States facing not one, but two essentially peer nuclear competitors, challengers, both of whom have agendas that are essentially anti-American, anti-American foreign policy, anti-American national security policy. We have to be able to deter both. And we have to be able to do that simultaneously. What, what we call out in the paper is that in order to do that, we need some kind of a hedging strategy to guard against several things. Uh, specifically, we need to be able to hedge against the prospect that both Russia and China will collaborate together militarily uh, to advance their goals and objectives at the expense of ours. That, that, that is, that is new, a new and different dynamic in the relationship. That means we need to think seriously and perhaps differently about what it is we need to do or how to respond should Russia and China get together. And of course, there is evidence of greater collaboration in the military sphere almost across the board between Russia and China today in their activities and their exercises and things like that. Secondly, uh, we, we need to be able to hedge against the greater uncertainty that exists in our deterrence requirements, because this new overall strategic environment we're, we're, we are in now needs to make us think whether or not the forces and the policies we put in place years ago are still relevant and are still appropriate to the new deterrence equation that we now face with two adversaries and potential adversaries as opposed to one. 
What does that mean for our deterrence requirements? What does that mean for our force posture? What does that even mean for arms control, if arms control is even possible? And third, I would say, the third thing that the report notes we need to hedge against is we need to hedge against the possible failure of deterrence. We've seen very, uh, very belligerent, aggressive statements regarding nuclear use, not only from Russia, but from China as well, particularly in a Taiwan context. China has threatened Japan. China has threatened Australia. Uh, China, China has been very outspoken, officially. Uh, and, and the Chinese Communist Party uh, uh, also, like, like Russia and Ukraine, believes Taiwan belongs to the People's Republic of China. Uh, and, and so it is possible that despite our best efforts in this new strategic environment, deterrence may break down. Deterrence may actually fail. And what we argue for is, is a reconsideration of what we might do in order to account or hedge against that possibility. That may be, for example, greater uh, missile defense capabilities uh, that, that we currently have. Traditionally, the United States has avoided building missile defenses to defend against the strategic arsenals of either Russia or China. Maybe it's time to rethink that policy in light of contemporary developments. So there are a number of things that I think are worthy of consideration given the new environment. The problem is the force structure we have today and even the modernization program we have is based on the forces we had years ago, in fact, decades ago, just simply trying to replace them. In fact, I wouldn't even call it a modernization program. I call it a replacement program. It's basically a one-for-one -one replacement program when it comes to our strategic triad. So it may be time to rethink our offensive nuclear posture as well as our defensive posture as well, given the new environment. Now, in your monograph, do you discuss sort of any of these, what you might call, you know, the big ticket items, like do we move from, you know, counter force to counter value? Do we need... Uh, a new arsenal of, you know, tactical or non-strategic nuclear weapons, whatever term you prefer. Uh, some of these sort of bigger challenges that that we face, or, or or possible solutions. Do you do you guys discuss that? Well, we don't get into specific programmatic issues across the board in terms of we need this new system or we don't need that system. Uh, yeah, we, we, we do discuss some systems. For example, one of the more controversial ones has been the uh, SLICK-MN, the, the nuclear sea launch cruise missile that the Trump administration in its nuclear posture review in 2018 proposed to go forward with. Uh, we do think that would make sense essentially to close what's been referred to as sort of a deterrence gap. Uh, and it would also be helpful in terms of assuring allies that the United States is not going to allow either Russia or China, essentially, to basically control the prospect of escalation in the theater uh, should, should push come to shove. Uh, you know, we, we do say it's time for a relook at homeland missile defenses. In fact, uh, you know, we came out uh, with a, another report just recently on the benefits of an enhanced homeland missile defense. 
take capability. So, so we, we tried to take, at least in our report, we tried to take a bit of a, a broader holistic view of the challenges we face and the need to sort of uh, re-wicker our thinking about how to deal with that in a way that best contributes to an enhancement of deterrence, including extended deterrence and, and assurance of allies. Uh, you know, in a, in a way that in a way that makes makes the most sense. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm hopeful uh, that sort of the 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 logic of of what we said in our report and the recommendations you know that that we propose you know will be will be taken seriously. But it's going to require you know uh, it's going to require a lot you know, sort of a, a change in the mindset in, in the way we approach these issues. We I think. The time has come where we've got to get out of sort of the Cold War mentality uh, and the post-Cold War idea that what we what we had back in the 90s or the early 2000s is sufficient for the 2020s, 2030s, and and beyond. It may be, it may not be, and it may not be for the reasons we outlined in our report. Therefore. We really, we really need to. We really need a serious reconsideration, I believe, uh, especially today, uh, in terms of how to bolster deterrence of Russia, China, or or anyone that might seek to challenge the United States or the NATO alliance. Yes, I certainly agree. It's time to relook at our long-held assumptions. Now, unfortunately, we are out of time for this show, and the. the you know what's so terrible about that fact is that we didn't even get a chance to talk about China. So what that means for you is that you are going to have to uh, come back on the show here soon. And we will talk about China, no Russia, no strategy, just, just a discussion about Chinese nuclear strategy, Chinese weapons development, and where you think they're heading. So, uh, well, Adam, I, I would be delighted to do that, of course. Uh, it, first of all, it's always a pleasure uh, to engage with you. Uh, you know uh, uh, quite a bit, obviously, about these topics. Uh, I, I, I admire uh, your understanding of these issues, and I'm always happy to uh, exchange views with you uh, on any of these topics. So uh, whatever, whatever you say... I will be more than happy to follow your lead. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the show, Dave Trachtenberg, and I will look uh, forward to having you back. And also want to thank the audience for spending your time listening to Nuclecast, brought to you by the Anwa Deterrence Center.